This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Welcome back to another TraumaCast brought to you by your Online Education Committee. At the East Conference this year, the committee met and uh, we have come up with the idea of having some guest moderators so uh, more of our members on the committee can get involved. And I think it would also help us bring more TraumaCast out to our listeners. So for our very first guest moderator today uh, is so Aditi Kapil. If you would mind uh, introducing yourself and tell us where you're from and, and what your role is. Hi, I'm Aditi Kapil. I'm from Bay State UMass in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, I'm a trauma surgeon and this is my first uh, moderation on TraumaCast. So we'll be talking about um, the Stop the Bleed and the journey that Dr. Lori Punch has in St. Louis. Lori, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm Lori Punch and I'm an acute care surgeon on faculty at Washington University in St. Louis. I work at Barnes Jewish Hospital and have been there for about three years. Awesome. So we're going to talk to you about your journey and starting the Stop the Bleed course and integrating into the community in St. Louis. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the Stop the Bleed course? So the Stop the Bleed campaign is a national campaign which is housed in the Department of Homeland Security. It was initiated at, after the tragedy that occurred at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, December 14, 2012. After that, Dr. Lenworth Jacobs convened the Hartford Consensus, which was a consortium of numerous professionals from law enforcement to military, pre-hospital providers and trauma surgeons with one question in mind, which is what could be done to reduce the impact of casualties in a mass shooter event. The decision that was made and what came out of that consensus was really quite simple. It wasn't to make the ambulance faster or the hospital better, but rather to teach the public to act as first responders in the setting of such a tragedy. And really, to, to take that beyond an event like a mass casualty event and to bring it to everyday life because the truth is injury is the number one cause of death for people age 1 to 44 and you can argue that bleeding is the number one preventable cause of trauma-related death. Therefore, teaching the public to stop the bleed goes way beyond horrors like Sandy Hook and really kind of are applicable to everyday life. So with that campaign in mind and through the work of many, many other folks in, in partnership with Dr. Jacobs, such as Dr. Sidwell and many others, that campaign got launched with uh, help, especially from the American College of Surgeons, which has mm -hmm. the Bleeding Control 1.0 course. Now, I was transferring my practice from Houston to St. Louis during the time when Stop the Bleed was growing, and I had the tremendous opportunity to go to courses at both the American College of Surgeons and AAST, I believe 2015, 
uh, and heard sort of examples of what could be done to start a course. Uh, I was in no position to do such a thing. But I think it was really important that I heard in particular from the folks at Pittsburgh and how they started um, and really grew their program in the uh, Bleeding Control 1.0 courses. So I had all of that, you know, in my mind and I was very interested. I actually went to medical school at UConn. So Dr. Jacobs was one of my teachers mm. and I, I was just so, I was also very, very involved in other American College of Surgeons courses such as Adam Asset, Best uh, and mm -hmm. ATLS. So it just seemed like, oh, this is my jam, right? Like I should <laughs> be doing this. So th th all of that was there and then enter in St. Louis. I'm going to so, pause there because there's a lot. This is the other yeah. part of the story. So in, you are coming into St. Louis when you decided to start promoting and start using Stop the Bleed and teaching the public. What barriers did you find? Because you you said you were just coming to a new institution trying to, you know, institute this campaign. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's actually kind of the other way around. It was the community oh. itself that inspired me to bring this campaign to St. Louis in a okay. kind of a new way. So the story is worth telling. So when I came on faculty at Washington University, there had been a year-long, really introspective, deep work that was happening through a uh, institute on the campus, which was across all the different schools at WashU, looking at the experience of gun violence. It was the Gun Violence Initiative. And that initiative was mm -hmm. inspired by the violent death of a young woman who was being mentored by the chancellor's wife and himself. Her name was Chelsea, and she was shot. Mm -hmm. It so shook the hearts and minds of the leadership uh, and the chancellor himself that he initiated a lot in partnership with his wife and the Institute for Public Health, which goes across, like I said, the entire campus, the Gun Violence Initiative. That initiative mm -hmm. had been rolling for about a year when I became part of the WashU faculty. That initiative okay. was looking at the work that was already happening in St. Louis around violence prevention and around the experience of gun violence. And I was welcomed into that work immediately as soon as I joined faculty. You know, I mm -hmm. trained in Baltimore and I had a longstanding interest in trauma as a social uh, disease and a mm -hmm. real heart to get involved in violence prevention, but never had really had the time and ability to do it in a meaningful way. As a young, uh, you know, faculty member, it's hard to get involved with these kinds of things, especially mm -hmm. if you're talking about starting something. Anyway, here I am now in St. Louis. This initiative is going, and I was invited to sit on a community panel. That panel okay. was run by Better Family Life. Mm -hmm. Better Family Life is a group that does community outreach work in spades. This is an incredible organization here in St. Louis, boots on the ground, com completely committed, really thinking of the family as the core of healing for our city. That mm -hmm. group was doing uh, citywide uh, meetings, going into some of the most uh, 
dense areas of violence and having panels in which professionals mm -hmm. working in gun violence as well as community members experiencing gun violence would share. So I got invited to one of those uh, after having only been in St. Louis a few months. And I thought, my goodness, what an opportunity to be out in the community, to connect, to discuss. And um, I, you know, presented, you know, my perspective as a trauma surgeon, you know, ED thoracotomy and all the blood and how connected I was to it and just sort of tried to really make this compelling story about how much I understood about the experience of gun violence. And it uh, didn't work. It, there was no connection. And I realized after I heard the community members speak that people were sort of functioning at such a more fundamental level. People describing not being able to be in their own front yard without fear for their life and the life of their children again, grandchildren. People experiencing a level of pain and suffering that sort of identified, okay, yeah, you go to the hospital, you get stitched up, whatever, but they don't really care after you leave. And we are out here and we are feeling this. And I, and I kind of realized, wow, I have a lot more listening to do and a lot less talking to do as I understand what it is to engage the community. Interestingly, after this panel, I went up to Mr. James Clark. He is the uh, community outreach, um, the head of community outreach for Better Family Life and one of their vice presidents. And he um, shared uh, some of his thoughts about gun violence de-escalation. Previously, I knew he was growing this new program in which he was taking his community outreach workers and going into the midst of community after someone had been hurt, for instance, or shot, and getting his outreach workers to actively de-escalate through meetings and collaboration, uh, literally um, mediating uh, hostilities between groups to try to make sure no one else got hurt after an act of violence. So I went up to him and I introduced myself because I knew uh, some of the work he was doing and I was so sort of proud to be there. And he was like, yeah, I know you. And I, and I know your I know your group, and what I want to know is where are you at? Why aren't you out here with us? And I realized in that moment the tremendous disconnect was even deeper, because it wasn't even that people didn't know who we were as part of the trauma center, but that the feeling they very much had was that we were totally not present. And and it was in that moment when I was like, you know, I don't know how to be present in the community. It's not like I can run a clinic. Uh, I don't do primary care. I mean, I'm a trauma surgeon. Like, this is what I do. It's like in the hospital, right? How do I possibly bring what I am out to the community? And that's when it clicked. And I remember the moment a few weeks later when I'm like, stop a bleed. Because I'm like, what group of people needs to know what to do in the setting of a severe emergency than people who are actively going into the midst of conflict and trying to de-escalate it. And wouldn't it be powerful if they had that skill set with them that they would feel more safe, more brave, and even add to the safety of the community they're in by being able to act in the setting of even violence. And so that's what I decided. And this was July of 2016 when I decided I wanted to do this work. I'm going to interrupt uh, for a moment and maybe even help clarify why why should I be in the community? Why is it important? Yeah, yeah. So the question is, what 
what should a trauma surgeon do outside of the hospital? Well, I think we can first take a look at other disease models. Certainly, the breast surgeon is all about promoting mammography. Certainly, the urologist is all about promoting prostate exams. Certainly, the nephrologist is all about screening for hypertension. I mean, there are models all over the place in which even people who take care of tertiary complex disease are intimately involved in its screening and prevention. And I think for the trauma surgeon, since so much of violence trauma is determined by where people live, the resources they have, and the structure that's around them, we have to have a presence in the community as well. So I, I also think that there's another part to this, which is a little bit more immediate. I don't think you can be therapeutic to a patient or to a community if there is not an element of trust and belief and your desire for that person to be well and for those communities to be healthy. While people can certainly recognize your technical excellence, they will do better if they believe you care. And that matters a lot. If you are absent, invisible, and disconnected from their experience, they will not heal the way they could heal if they had that knowledge of how much you care about how they do. So, Lori, when you went into the community with Stop the Bleed, with the Better Life Network, how did the community take to you? So it's interesting because, once again, this did not happen overnight. It took mm -hmm. a really long time. And that is also worth sort of reviewing. So, again, this was July 2016 when I decided I wanted to bring something to the community. And I decided that something was going to be Stop the Bleed. Now, there are a couple of obstacles to that. The two main obstacles are, one, the resources to bring the material to the for the campaign to people where they are, and then, two, them opening the door to it. So I spent the first little bit of time really thinking about them opening the door to us because there was such distrust. So how did I do that? Emails, phone calls, showing up at community events just to participate and be visible, asking questions. And I did a number of meetings, both with Mr. Clark and his community outreach group before I showed up with the Stop the Bleed class. I first learned more about what they were doing and then made it clear the value added and what I wanted to bring to them. I also made it clear that I wasn't coming asking for anything. Too often, those of us who in particular are in academic surgery want a clear academic product from every single thing we do. And when it comes to working with the community, I really think you have to build that trust and build those bridges, asking for nothing and quite honestly, even giving, especially when you're starting from a standpoint of distrust. Okay. So that is that process took quite a while. It took a year and a half, actually, of connecting and relating before Stop the Bleed was really even on the table. The next obstacle was the resources for the class. There's a certain amount of funds that are required to start up uh, the course, including getting trained, getting the equipment, and then really, if you're going to do this right, 
and we had the intention we had toward this group, you need to leave people with trauma first aid kits because if they don't have that material, they're not fully empowered to act out what Stop the Bleed is about. Uh, at a minimum, some kind of gauze, some kind of gloves, and some kind of tourniquet. And it needs to be high quality, and it needs to not fail, and it needs for that group that we were working with to be portable. It can't be this sort of bulky thing. So we thought a lot and thought a lot and thought a lot about how to do that. And we were stuck for quite a while trying to appeal to groups for funding. Because I think a lot of people think about Stop the Bleed as a theoretical, right? How many people are you actually going to save if they learn this stuff? Everyone, the big, you know, the big grant foundations and the scientific community wants to know a number. And it's really, really hard to put a value on what it is for somebody to know that they could save a life. Because I really think that's as impactful as the life-saving training itself. Once we overcame the issue of trust and Mr. Clark was willing to let us come and work with his outreach workers, then we tackled the issue of resource. And what we really had to do is to scale down and really think about high quality products that we could purchase that would allow us to teach the class and get trauma first aid kits in everyone's hand. We realized that pre-assembled trauma first aid kits are not ideal for people who are going to uh, necessarily be on their feet moving around. Like I said, they need to be almost wearable. And we also thought it was important that people be able to know exactly what was in their trauma first aid kit by assembling it themselves. So we broke the kit down to its most essential elements and found the best quality cost-effective material we could find. And then we provided tactical type gear to put it in so that they could literally wear it on their belts. When we went to teach the class, we brought food. Uh, we gave it plenty of time, a two-hour window. Uh, we answered a lot of questions and really, really heard just as much as we said. And then we provided everyone with the certificate in the form of a wallet-sized card that they could put into their wearable kit, and we did all of it completely for free. That day, we trained around um, 15 community outreach workers, but that day, our program launched into a completely different place. Now, along the way, you keep hearing me say the word we. What do I mean by we? <laughs> so <laughs> it's really important, I think, to have a group who's supportive around you. It does not necessarily have to be a lot of people. I initially had support from my trauma uh, services uh, office, every you know, level one trauma center, level two trauma center is going to have a, a group of people who are committed to maintaining that leveling and who are tasked in some way with outreach. And so that group had been helpful to us in getting us off the ground, uh, giving us um, the training equipment. And we actually borrowed the training equipment from that group the first day when we did the outreach. The other thing is I had a medical student and a second year surgery resident who helped me, who had a lot of experience in public health and pre-hospital care because one had an MPH and one was a paramedic in, uh, before med school. Their insight in how to approach this was critical because I didn't even have myself the entire skill set to put this program together. 
but they really filled it out. And to this day, that three-person team is the team that runs our program. Since that time of teaching those 15 outreach workers, we have now taught 2,000 people and been able to provide around 1,500 bleeding control kits along the way at a fraction of the cost of what it would cost to buy the commercially available pre-assembled kit. And that's been a real uh, amazing amount of progress as it's really only been since March 2018 that we did our first class. Has anyone come back that you have taught and told you that they've at least gotten comfort from knowing how to treat the active bleeding or even had to use it? So that is the next really big part of the story. So after we trained the Better Family Life outreach workers, we started reaching out to our medical students, to our nursing staff, and to our schools, trying to get people trained in three areas, including the community, especially the community at high risk for gun violence, schools, as many of our school campuses were completely unprepared for uh, treating gun violence, and then our own campus, because between the undergraduate campus and all the professional schools, there was not a solid plan in place for people to know bleeding control techniques. So that work uh, we continued, and about, I would say, a month after we trained the Better Family Life group, one of their outreach workers responded to the scene of a motor vehicle collision and was able to provide trauma first aid to two of the folks in the crash who were um, bleeding. That story was televised on a local news station, and it really gave us a tremendous uh, increase in our visibility in the community. Uh, and it showed our story of how we had partnered with Better Family Life to make this training available, and it was already being put into action. We actually had a number of those kinds of stories come back, including a young woman who was able to apply a tourniquet as one of her family members had been stabbed in the groin and was waiting a long time for an ambulance and was literally bleeding to death in front of her. We had provided her a kit, and she was able to respond as well. So a number of those stories got told. We got support from local news media by connecting so richly to Better Family Life and establishing that first relationship. And by doing it, again, arms wide open, totally giving, not asking for anything, just showing up, listening more than talking, all of those things, they decided to support us in our work. And they started connecting us to other community groups. And it just started growing and growing and growing. And it's incredible how that first relationship has now spawned so many uh, relationships uh, with the community. So you've been teaching Stop the Bleed for almost, it'll be a year this March, it sounds like. How are you keeping up with the funding as, as the program gets bigger and bigger? That is an excellent question. And it's a hard question because the truth is we have had limited access uh, to funds of any substantial size. Um, we've got some support from our county health department who gave us a small grant to do outreach specifically with youth. And we've also received some support from our academic department um, for the purchase of hemostatic gauze through a partnership with a company there called Beacon Medical who produces Newstat. 
those two uh, um, areas of support were really helpful in getting us through the beginning of uh, the summer. Now the platform that we're working on is to try to get funds to make some bulk purchases of supplies so that we can get our trauma first aid kits even less expensive and then to uh, continue to reach out to folks in the community who are in a position for instance, to buy kits for um, a little bit more than cost that then can offset the cost for others. We have a program called Get One, Give One, in which somebody can purchase a bleeding control kit for cost, or they can add uh, just a little bit more to the price and make sure we can get a kit not just to them, but to give a kit away to someone else. Does it ever feel like that you have hit a wall sometimes? And how do you get through that emotionally? Because you've seemed to put your heart and soul into this. Yeah, well, I will say that there's a couple things we've learned. First of all, when you're talking about doing courses for the public, getting the word out and making it clear what you're offering is really, really important. Because um, people don't necessarily want to think about this topic. It's not that they're dismissive of what we're saying, but it's just unpleasant to think about. So the best way that we have found to get people in and to get them interested is to find someone within the group who's interested and let them reach out to their group to get them inspired and bring them in. So what do I mean? For instance, when we're approaching a school, we make sure we first start with the school nurse because the school nurse is going to be the most influential person in thinking about the health and safety of the school. Some schools have safety officers as well, and that's another very powerful advocate. Going straight to a principal, he might just seem like another person who's asking for their time, and it doesn't really, the context of what you're, you know, you're trying to do might not make sense. Or let's say you're trying to approach a business about training them. Again, you need to find somebody within the group who has some kind of medical sensitivity, if you will, and have them be the mouthpiece to the community that they're working with, uh, you know, sort of why this matters. As far as reaching out to the broader community, in particular the community that's at risk for gun violence, I think this has to be done with a lot of mm, sort of rootedness in what trauma-informed care is. And I have learned very much to recognize that even just talking about severe bleeding can be quote-unquote triggering to people and you must be gentle and honor their responses whatever they are because this is heavy and if you've sat there and watched someone bleed to death which we have many participants who have told us unbelievable stories of the things that they've seen even very very young people children in their teens describing seeing horrific scenes you gotta be very very willing to hear very 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 slow to judge and very, very open to whatever it is that people bring to the table. In fact, it's exactly that kind of input, good and bad, that's a let us grow our program and improve it greatly. So what do I mean by that? So here's, here's, here's an example. The American College of Surgeons Bleeding Control 1.0 course is extremely good. It's been well vetted in the literature as a course that's able and capable of teaching the public how to do bleeding control. The problem is much of the imagery and much of the equipment really, really um, is not representative of the communities that we're trying to serve. 
the, many of the images are of men and many of the images are of people with fair skin. And that does not necessarily inspire a community to see themselves as those who are able to act. If you think about a community which has a lot of women, which has a lot of minorities and has a lot of people from different backgrounds. So we have gone out of our way to take some of the sort of mm, hidden curriculum and, and make that as inclusive as possible by using images of women and people of color and by even changing our training material so it doesn't look like the sort of quote-unquote flesh tone, but that it actually is foam material that's made of many, many different colors. So it's not anybody, it's everybody. I think that is so important because if you're trying to teach the public how to respond and the public isn't seeing itself in the material you're presenting, you're really losing an opportunity to help help people move toward empowerment. And that's been a really important uh, thing for us in terms of how we've approached the community. I think that's an amazingly important point because if people don't realize you're teaching to the community and don't see themselves, they they won't even incorporate themselves. They won't even seek out to be there, to be even present, to learn what's what's being taught. I think that's you, so important. I, I agree with you yeah. completely. And I really think it's been sort of a little bit of our secret sauce, if you will, as to why so many people have uh, been in, uh, willing to bring us in. We've even taught the class to people as young as uh, nine years old. And we've taught the class in settings that are so incredibly varied. What I find amazing is this. If you set your material so that it is applicable to the most vulnerable member in your community, the majority members in the community will handle it. They, they do quite well. They do not have a problem seeing imagery of others. You have to think about who your minority status group is and how they're going to receive the material. Because the truth is, everyone else can adjust. But the young kid who can't see themselves acting will feel left out. And that's really, really important. In fact, this point is so important to us. We're in the process of doing some dissemination and implementation work through the help of our um, uh, public health colleagues, because we think this is so important. We want to get this information to as many people as possible. This work must be representative for people to be empowered. So we want to, we're crafting some work right now so we can actually study that. That's great. How would you say if somebody, another trauma surgeon would want to start this, where would you tell them to start? What would you be their advice? For so, yeah. So what would I tell a trauma surgeon who wanted to do the same work in their community. I think the first thing to do is to build your team. You need people who are good at things that trauma surgeons aren't necessarily good at. That has been essential for me. And to really think broadly about who that can be, because that does not necessarily have to be even a faculty member or a staff member, it can be a trainee or a student. That's certainly been a huge push to our work moving forward, finding the strengths right in front of us. Uh, I also think that you have to then also find your community ally. You have to find somebody who believes that you care and wants you to come into their space. 
That might be working with a PTA at your kid's school. That might be working with the coach of your kid's uh, school group. That might be identifying the neighborhood block association on your block to teach at their meeting. That might be working with law enforcement to teach the uh, local citizens police academy. That might be working with the boys and girls club down the street where you might volunteer. That might be working with any community organization that's doing uh, any kind of violence prevention. And I think if you can really sit down with somebody and first hear what they are doing and then say what you would like to add to it. That is a huge way to move forward. And I guess the last thing is material. So we actually have a program in which we support people to start Stop the Bleed programs uh, with low cost uh, material uh, that's seriously effective and can really help get any program off the ground for a very, very small amount of money. And, and that's something that we're committed to sharing if anyone's interested. We're very sensitive to the fact that bleedingcontrol.org uh, is a site where all of these resources can be accessed from the American College of Surgeons. And we're certainly not trying to go outside of that. But we also recognize that we would hate for people to not do this work simply because resource restrictions. If all of us just reached out to a couple groups in our community, we could rapidly expand the National Stop the Bleed campaign. Yeah, that's that's great work that you're doing in St. Louis. What what changes do you think will come uh, in the next year as you make progress? So that's a great question. The changes that we see coming up are a narrowed focus even more on the groups that we so very much want to interact with, including schools and communities at high risk for gun violence, but also large campuses or build or businesses where there are a lot of people that could be contacted at once. And uh, that's developing material again so that we can quickly and cleanly interface with people, make it clear what we're bringing, keep the time limited and show them the value of investing. We say it's an hour of your life that can save a life. But what I'm most excited about is our new youth outreach program in which we have now been teaching this course in the juvenile detention centers in both St. Louis City and St. Louis County family courts. We're literally going into the detention centers and teaching the detained youth. And I say we, I mean medical students, because they do a far better job of teaching to young, talking and teaching young people than I can. And through that, we have now been able to launch a longitudinal volunteer experience for youth who are not detained. See, this whole thing started for me as a desire to decrease the impact of gun violence. And one of the biggest ways that we can prevent gun violence in the first place, or violent injury in general, is to empower youth with jobs. That is very, very well described and well known as one of the most powerful tools in prevention. So the next step, which we have just applied for, is to actually bring youth and employ them uh, over the summer as we do our uh, community outreach and uh, trainings. And it's really, really exciting to think that we've gone from this little idea to now having a platform in which we can bring the community, not just as recipients, but as true partners in the work that we're doing. And I think that is a real step 
toward decreasing the impact of gun violence in our region. Lori, I think your work has really inspired our listeners. Is there any last words that you want to put out there about your work? Um, I really think that I can't state enough uh, humbly how much help I've gotten along the way from so many people who are interested in doing this work. It's interesting if you look, most people want to help. And the biggest obstacle that people face is time, resources, and connection. And I think my story is a real example of how taking the time to make those connections, being super focused, diligent, and not giving up where you truly feel compelled to meet a need is one of the best ways to get engaged with your community. To listen more than you talk, to come with arms wide open and ask for nothing. That's a very, very powerful way to start. And to start with what you're good at. You know, I, I didn't think that a trauma surgeon did have much to offer outside of the hospital. And now I realize just showing up, caring, and teach pe- teaching people trauma first aid is one of the best things I could possibly do. And is exciting me sometimes now even more than the work I do inside the hospital. This is amazing. And it's good to know sometimes just showing up will be the first steps to make amazing progress in your community. Absolutely. Carrie, is there any other questions you want to ask? No, no, I think that's very comprehensive. And uh, Lori, I really appreciate it. One of the quotes you said that I wrote down that I'm going to just try to keep in the back of my mind is to be willing to hear and be very slow to judge. And I think that we can take that uh, into the hospital as well as outside the hospital as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. I want to be respectful of your time and we really appreciate you joining us. And uh, for those listeners out there, I'll post some of the supplemental material and uh, online links on the east.org website under TraumaCast. And then we'll also push it out on Twitter as well. Lori, thank you for joining us as our guest. And Aditi, I think you did a lovely job as a first time moderating and uh, I'd be uh, welcome to have you come back again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.